I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we take something that's already been created and we make it goofy and sew it into a t-shirt. And if that is not what you want, you want the original information before it's been sewed into a funky little shirt, you go find it yourself. You go read it. You go deal with it. And if you want our version, though, come here and we'll have it. Beautiful. I'm sold. (laughs) Excellent salesmanship. You're a regular Betsy Johnson. Thank you. When is this episode coming out? This episode's coming out after we've been to Chicago and Minneapolis. So I hope we had a fun time. I'm sure we did, but I would never lie on here and say it was a great show because egg on my face should we all get struck by lightning. You know what I mean? How humiliating and quite gauche if we were all sitting there enjoying ourselves and lightning struck and we all died. And then out comes this episode and I go, we had a great time. And you go, they're liars. And I don't want you to ever think I'm liars. They're dead. We're idiots. We're dum-dums. We're lazy, but we're not liars. Sometimes (laughs) we're just flat out wrong and we're saying things confidently that we're just wrong about, but we would never lie to you. Ain't that the truth? (laughs) Anyway, so hopefully we had a fun time at that show. We are doing a bit of pre-recording because Claire is about to head off and get wed. Ugh, humiliating. Okay, she's been wife for some weeks now, but this is the last episode where her voice is still a virgin. Yeah, this is my single voice. If you're not already a Patreon subscriber, you don't know that we have like this sick relationship with our Patreon where we will (laughs) never take a week off. We will never not give you guys the tea. So... Please know that we will be recording the Sunday after the wedding, i.e. like 24 hours later, because we will be putting out an episode the week of the honeymoon. We want it fresh off the wedding drama. So if you were wondering what happened at that wedding, did it go good? Did everyone say I do? Am I wed now? Yeah. You could go back and find that information. Every episode that we've ever recorded is live on the Patreon. So if you're looking for a way to fill a 200-hour road trip with some of the goofiest little thoughts you ever heard. We've done hundreds of episodes over there, baby. So, Claire, right now, if you were to write a memoir about your life, how would you describe last week's chapter? Cool like a little cucumber. I'm feeling good, honestly. I'm feeling relatively calm. I feel like I don't have anything interesting to say. You know, we're just checking boxes, making welcome bags, running around. I got an Olplex bun in. I don't know. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling excited. It's more of the same. But Ashley. Yeah. How are you feeling? You're in the middle of your... Super Bowl, your wedding Super Bowl weeks. My wedding Super Bowl weeks, I feel good. I feel like my fits are coming together. I feel like I'm happy with the general vibe. I had a nice weekend in Boston. My cousin's wedding was extremely lovely. Beautiful. And it is like nice to hang out with your family. I like them. Hot tick. I know. We don't have a lot of like little family things anymore because everyone's an adult with a family. And so it was like nice to gather around and be like, oh, my mom's messing everything up. And then everyone's like, yeah, your mom messes everything up. And we're all like, hell yeah. (laughs) Shout out Debbie Hamilton. (laughs) She tries so hard. More about that on the Patreon. (laughs) I am like nervous for your life. Debbie, I did not say that. I know you're listening. I have not a bad word to say about you. And thank you so much for the wedding gift you sent. It's very beautiful. And I really appreciate it. It wasn't her fault. But I did have a really nice time hanging out with my cousins and my family and wearing a dress that I felt really pretty in because let me tell you what, it actually is really fun to be like your wedding day. I feel pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Should we get into her? Yes. Betsy Johnson, who I had thought was the heir to the Johnson and Johnson fortune. 
And I kept waiting for that part to come up. That was something I made up completely in my Interesting. head. I guess I was mixing up with Casey Johnson. Who's Casey Johnson? She actually is an heir to the Johnson & Johnson fortune, but I don't know if she was a clothing designer or not. Having a normal name like Johnson makes Nepo baby detection hard. If you don't know who Bessie Johnson is, she is like the it designer for many a years. She started out in the 60s mm-hmm. and up and through our teenage years, she like reigned supreme. She had a cool, bold look. She had cool, bold dresses. If you saw her dresses, I think you'd probably definitely recognize them. It's going to be a real fun trip down memory lane. She was funky. She was outside the box. She honestly, can I say, based on current fashion cycles, I will say is rearing for a comeback. I think somebody who collects all Betsy Johnson dresses and they're so freaking cute. I saw a picture of these Betsy Johnson fruit dresses the other day and I was like, where the fuck can I find those? And I didn't even realize they were Betsy Johnson dresses. It was just like a Pinterest photo and I was like, I have to have that. And it turns out there are these like rare vintage Betsy Johnson dresses that currently sell for like a zillion and a half dollars. And I was like, okay, I actually don't need a fruit dress that bad, but I want one. I love her because she doesn't believe in doing trends. She just dresses for herself and it's very specific and she's a cool, cool person. And you can see the way it's influenced so many trends. So let's get into her. I'm really excited. It's an interesting story. She's an interesting lady. So she was born in Connecticut. On August 10th, 1942, which means she is currently 81. But this book came out when she was, I guess, 78. So she had lived to tell the tale. However, if we've learned anything from Jane Fonda, there could be another chapter. Yeah, you can never assume just because you're a 78 year old woman that you know how most of your life is gone. There could be another 30 years wherein you do a whole nother thing or you get to meet Tom Brady. (laughs) I cannot speak highly enough of the film 80 for Brady. I loved it. So she's always been a firecracker. She's always been a little ball of energy. She says she was born and just like immediately bounced off the walls. She would just like obsessively do handstands and her mom would be like, stop doing handstands. And she's like, I have to do the perfect handstand. She says, from what I've heard, the sun in Leo means you go out into the world and you shine. And that behavior was always instinctual to me. I was full of energy and enthusiasm and had my own special kind of appeal that wasn't at all determined by my looks. She also had to say a number of times, like I was popular, but it wasn't for being pretty. It was for being cool as shit. Yeah. And she's like, and I'm glad I was because looks fade. Hers didn't. She still looks great. She has such a specific, unique look, and it's very cool. Yeah, and she's had looks. I've only ever known her as like this blonde, mop-toppy look, and she's had some real phases. But anyway, so she has an older brother and an older sister. They're all two years apart. And she had a very idyllic little life in Connecticut. She had her two parents. Her dad was a hardworking iron worker. Her mom was an energetic homemaker. She loved them both. She tried very hard to be good. She talks about being very jealous of her older sister, for whom being good just came so naturally. But she was very anxious. She says, I remember I had this irrational fear of dying, which came seemingly from nowhere. And then on the next page, she goes, if I were to play armchair psychiatrist, I would have to say that World War II had something to do with my dread. The war was in full swing when I was born. I do remember hearing war reports on the radio as a child and seeing scary pictures in the newspaper that I didn't quite understand. That to me actually makes a ton of sense that if (laughs) generally a world war was happening just around you, you would feel anxious. There would be an idea of death amongst a child. Especially as a kid who like didn't understand what world war meant necessarily. Yeah. I mean, she's very silly. She said growing up, she had two cats named Pete and Repeat. That's very funny. She was a big dancer growing up. She loved her dance teacher. She thought her dance teacher was just the most incredible woman in the world. Big fish in a small pond. She assumed every man was in love with her and every woman would be jealous of her. She got to be in Broadway at one point. She was... The person who said, you know, you can have a bigger life than this. And from a young age, Betsy took to that. She also was very creative with her dance routines and her choreography and creating these full-on productions using whatever resources they had. And it really 
planted a little seed in Betsy of like whatever thing you're doing, go fucking big with it. And they didn't have a ton of money. They were like working to middle class. And so a lot of their clothes her mom made. And she says, I don't remember getting a huge feeling of excitement for making the clothes, but she learned to sew from her mother. I had no idea that this would become my life's work. Back then, it was just a means to an end. I don't remember deriving any great pleasure from cutting and sewing other than the joy of spending time alone with my mom. She was not great in school. She just had a hard time focusing, especially on like math and science and those types of things. But she has fond memories of school. She was absolutely boy crazy. Her and her friends, they didn't even know what it meant. They just like loved chasing boys. They were very innocent in their boy chasing. She was a cheerleader. That meant a lot to her. Yeah, being a cheerleader was hugely important. So her dance teacher, Anne K. Pym, was obviously the light of her life. She loved Anne K. Pym. She was a huge inspiration. Then when her dad got a new job, the family moved and she was not able to drive to Anne K. Pym's studio anymore. So she joined a new studio. That teacher got pregnant and kind of abandoned the studio. And Betsy Johnson, at like 14, started the Betsy Johnson School of Dance. And then they moved again. She started a new Betsy Johnson School of Dance. So she was dancing, cheering. That was very important to her. Anne had also taken her into New York City one time to see the Rockettes. And so her driving force at this time was becoming a Rockette, which, same. But she also had all this business experience from such a young age. The crazy schedule didn't phase me in the least. I was doing what I loved. I was also making some money of my own and learning how to handle the financial matters of the school, which my dad helped me with. So she goes to this new school. She's 14. She's in high school. And of course, what does she love? Art. And she has this art teacher named Rita, Rita Card, who would be a major influence in the direction of my life. So she had this art teacher that taught her to really look at things. She said they would have entire drawing classes where nobody even drew. She would teach them to see things in different ways and take them on sketching runs and walks. And the principal did not like how much freedom the teacher took with the class. But she's like, to this day, it has more of an impact on me than almost anything else. She really taught me how to look at things and see them differently to really see what else is there. Yeah. And she's always had a very abstract sensibility about things. So she was the leader of the prom committee. And so she had to come up with a prom theme and she was competing with her sister who had done Around the World in 80 Days and made like a world theme. Her theme was Flirtation Walk. And that was definitely harder to conceptualize visually. (laughs) But she tried her best. Also, if you don't know what a flirtation walk is, because that is a phrase literally from the 1950s. It was what we used to call a secluded area where your date would take you for a makeout session. Kind of a slutty theme, to be honest. Yeah, I literally cannot believe the theme of prom was hookup den. Who let her do that? <laughs> I don't know. That feels insane to me. Like, even at our today's school dance, and you know, today we're all whores and sluts at school. Yeah. You've seen Euphoria. I mean, can I say there's an entire genre of film that's like, if you're a virgin at prom, you're a fucking baby. But even <laughs> in today's day and age, I think if I said, I have an idea for how to decorate for prom, it's just orgy hole. They'd be like, that feels a little on the nose. <laughs> Maybe we go with spring in bloom. (laughs) Flowers for spring. Ew. Groundbreaking. I had started wanting to create a fairyland, but it ended up attacking mass. Well, the theme was sluts. She wore a heavy off-white dress that was floor length with a dirndl skirt. I think I'm saying that right. The bodice went straight across. The whole dress was sprinkled with rhinestones. And of course, she added more. It's just funny because if you know what she does now, she has a lot of petticoats, a lot of like crinoline she loves poof poof and exaggerated silhouettes and kind of 1880s and stuff so it's funny to see there it was in her clothes the whole time she was obsessed as a little girl with starching her petticoat so they'd be super stiff you want to talk about fucking personal style yeah betsy johnson has a personal style that has been true to her since she was eight years old and now she's 80 
and you could pick out every one of her outfits, everything she's ever designed. It's all cohesive. It's all true to her. Yes. So her dad had gone to Pratt Institute when it was more of a trade school for engineering. And she wanted to study art. And so because her dad had gone there, it was very easy to convince her parents that she wanted to go to art school because it was her dad's alma mater. And she also really wants to get to New York City because that's where the Rockettes are. So she applies to Pratt, gets in for art, and heads off to Pratt in Brooklyn. Where she tells the story of having a roommate named Cheryl, who she really liked. She was a home act nerd, which apparently you could study full time. And honestly, I don't think that's a bad idea. We should bring it back. Yeah. It's not good that I don't know about taxes or pie or pie or like how to properly clean things. I have to like Google sometimes how to clean a sink. How do you clean a sink? Well, you have to get into the drain. Uh oh. <laughs> I fear my apartment is disgusting. <laughs> anyway, she lives with Cheryl. She gets on really well with Cheryl. She thinks she's great. Cheryl does leave every night in the middle of the night. And she's like, where the fuck is Cheryl going? And then she and the school find out that Cheryl is going to Manhattan to pick up men for money. And Cheryl does get kicked out of school. How would Cheryl even know how to do that? I know this sounds so stupid, but I'm like, before the internet, like, who was Cheryl? I just feel like that's such a such a modern activity. For an 18-year-old girl back in the day in yeah. college. Maybe when she was from New York? Had she come in a week early for orientation? Like, when had she had time to learn how to do such a thing? I don't know. Anyway, so she becomes a cheerleader at Pratt because she loves, like, sporting events and camaraderie and school spirit and being a cheerleader so much. But being a cheerleader is not cool at Pratt Institute. They only have a basketball team. There's no football team. There's no real sports culture. And it is like an art freak school. And she's like, okay, they did not think it was cool to support sports like this. She just doesn't really get along with people at Pratt. However, she loves the professors. Years later, I found myself thinking back on these professors. I connected the dots and realized why some of them are so great. Given that it was 1960 and that we were living in New York City, it made total sense that most of them were beatniks. And that kind of beat attitude naturally spilled over into what they were teaching. She also realizes that she is not going to become a Rockette because she has no time to do art school and practice dance. Also, she's too short. Also, she gained weight in college, and she keeps mentioning it in this way where I'm like, Betsy, it's okay. You're allowed. She, like, captioned one of the photos of her. There's a ton of photos in this book, and she has a photo of her being a cheerleader. And she wrote thunder thighs and pom-poms. I'm like, Betsy. Don't be so mean to yourself. It's okay. You don't have to hate your thighs from 60 years ago. It all worked out for you. So she starts looking at other colleges because she's like, I didn't even really do research before going to Pratt. I just had art in mind. But she really wants like the college experience. So she applies to a bunch of other schools. She visits a handful of other schools and she ends up at Syracuse University. Just like. Just like me. Can I say it's very ironic that Betsy Johnson, who's like such a little punk princess. And me, also a punk princess. Would be like, all I want is a sorority. And that is all she wanted. All she wanted was to go to a sorority just like she saw in the movies. And I'm like, did they have movies back then about sororities? I thought it was a modern thing that invented in the 90s. But she just wanted the real all-American experience. She, at her core, is like a sweet, small-town Connecticut girl. And she keeps that foundation in her. She loves, like, friendship and camaraderie and, like, groups. She ends up going to Syracuse. I mean, Syracuse does have a really good design program. She studies illustration. She also learns fabric design, which she, like, was weirdly into, even though she just took it to supplement her illustration credits. But because she had all this experience sewing, she would make these interesting abstract floral designs on fabric. And then because she had all this fabric that she had to turn in for class, she would sew it into dresses. 
and like have all these really unique dresses that people loved. And she says at first she was so bored by design class because you have to create these repeat patterns, which is, she says, very, very boring. You just see the same thing over and over again. But because she was so bored, she learned all these new ways of doing it where she would use her nails instead of her tools that made it very modern and different looking. And her teachers loved it. So they're like, go for it. Do whatever you can. And she did. She had all these new patterns that felt very different than what other people were doing. She said, I had the freedom at Syracuse to be me, whatever that was at the time. My experimentation was supported and eventually rewarded by the department. Ten years after I graduated, I was presented with the George Arendt's Award, which the university gives once a year to an alumni who made good. Hello, bitch. Hello, Syracuse, if you're listening right now. Has Ashley not made good? Do you think what we're doing here is not good? I think that a couple people from my year were on Forbes 30 under 30, but how many of them are on podcast charts around 30 sometimes, depending on the week? That's a really good question, Ashley. So. And we didn't even have to pay to be there. For your consideration, Ashley Hamilton. (laughs) I've only talked shit about Syracuse. I did like it. Like I had a really great time there. It just like soured in my mind after I had a significant amount of debt after I graduated and did not feel that I'd had received the tools to get a job that would pay that for me. Anyway, she also had two dorm rooms dedicated to her called the Betsy Johnson rooms where she like got to decorate dorm rooms with Betsy Johnson wallpaper. I would have loved to live in a Betsy Johnson room. That's awesome. So she moves to Syracuse. She gets into a sorority. And guess what happens right away? She's an outcast. She's like, they did not like me in that sorority. I was friends with this girl, Diane, who nobody else liked either. We two were pretty much the outcasts in the house. I was still heavy and still overeating. And Diane was a real studious type with the cat's eye glasses and problem hair. I wonder what problem hair is. She and I used to raid the icebox at night and gorge ourselves in our room. When the house mother found out, she put a lock on the icebox door. So we started hoarding food in our rooms, which was strictly forbidden. She becomes a cheerleader at Syracuse and she gets to do the football games, basketball games. It was her dream. She becomes the head cheerleader. So when they go on the road, it's her and one other cheerleader who go with the football team and she leads them out of the tunnel. And she's like, it's very powerful when you're like running out of a tunnel and there's an entire football team following you. And I'm like, oh, I'm sure it is. I was actually roommates with the Baton Girl. So I think that she had that experience as well at Syracuse. You know how I feel about marching band at all. You love it. I'm electrified just thinking about it. One time she had fire batons. It was crazy. People would always be like, oh my God, your roommate is the baton girl. Her name was also Ashley. Got the wrong one, but. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine how successful this podcast would be if you had gotten the right Ashley? I mean, I'm sorry. Can you imagine how much better this podcast would be if there was fire batons? (laughs) There's nothing that makes a podcast succeed like an incredible visual trick. (laughs) Oh, I wish we had done fire batons back in the old days when we were still in my apartment <laughs> before we put the video of this podcast on YouTube. If we started doing fire batons, do you guys think that would add to your experience? You would just have to believe us. You would hear it. You'd hear whoosh. And I think it would also add a dynamism in our dynamic. I think we'd speak faster. Some people always leave comments and they say, you guys talk really slow. Say, if only this was a bit more manic. Put some fire in the belly. Anyway, back to bets. Okay, so Betsy decided she wanted to boink. She had not yet lost her virginity, even though other girls were doing it. And she decided she wanted to lose her virginity to someone from a rival football team because she didn't want to, like, soil the ground she sleeps in. It's like a 60,000-person school. And she's like, but if you fuck one, it's like a drop of blood in a bucket. Can I tell you that is actually true? I would, like, hook up with someone at Syracuse and then, like, a month later hook up with someone else and then find out they were roommates. And I'd be like, fuck, not again. Anyway, she goes to the Colgate game. She bangs. She's a woman. She has a not good relationship with men. 
I was like, you're so strong. You're so successful. You're so impressive. Stop losing yourself to these fellas. I think then more than now, even though still now, it was very hard to be a successful woman romantically. Yeah. I just don't think there was room for it. Nobody knew what to do. Yeah. I mean, I guess now that I think about it, she did almost exactly what Jane Fonda did. Her pattern is the same. I know. It's like one dud, second dud, kooky billionaire. I'd always loved Mademoiselle magazine. By the time I got to college, I read it religiously. So Mademoiselle was like the it Cosmo of its time. And when she was a senior in college, they had this program where you could apply to be one of their college girls and you would get to guest edit a September issue, spend a month in New York City, and then spend a week in Europe. So she applied, but it was like a 10-month process or nine-month process where every month they would give you a different homework assignment that you had to complete so that they could vet the girls. And she's like, what they were really doing was market research by picking these 20 women who represented the girls of the day and saying like, what do you care about? What do you think? So that they could better do their magazine, which is genius, but I would say worth it. It was worth it because she gets it. She wins. She says previous winners of this guest editing contest were Sylvia Plath, Joan Didion, and Candace Bergen. That is a pretty impressive group of people. So they were picking them. They were picking them. She applies. She makes it as a finalist. So she spends every month doing these assignments along with her schoolwork. And she gets it. So she actually has to miss her graduation because she has to report to New York City the day that graduation was supposed to be. Her parents drop her off in New York City. They have housing for the girls. And she starts working at this magazine. So at this point, she says she was not at all interested in fashion. She was much more interested in art. That was her laser focus. And also, she was obsessed with getting to New York City. So it's not like she wanted to be part of a fashion magazine. She wanted to get to New York City, and she was hoping to do art for them, I think. Mm -hmm. And she's like, of course, because I was doing this fabric design and because I sewed my own clothes, a lot of times I would design my own fabric and then sew my own clothes. But that was not her primary interest. So she gets to New York and she's about to get her assignment, what department at the magazine she's going to be working with. And she is assigned the fabric department. She is very let down by this until she meets DJ. So back then, every magazine had a section dedicated to fabrics because so many people were making their own clothes. So you could learn all about new textiles and in some cases even get free patterns. It's so interesting to think how much things have changed. I guess like big department stores would have an entire textiles department. I know I don't know anything about what I'm about to say, but it's so funny to think about living in an era where like new fabrics were being discovered or created. I guess we're still probably inventing them to this day, but I just feel like we've got a lot of ideas already. I guess there probably are places where people are writing about it, but it's like niche blogs. Yeah. I mean, isn't that the outdoor voices thing? Wasn't she a textile designer by trade? I want to read that article where she's like being super petty in the comments right now. We could talk about it on the Patreon. Okay. So she's assigned to the fabric department, which she thinks is boring as fuck, but her editor is named DJ White, and DJ White is awesome. She is very just enthusiastic and inspiring and exciting and excited. So everything she talks about, she like gets people on board with. And so because of that, Betsy gets kind of on board with fabric stuff. When I was with DJ, I was excited. Her enthusiasm was absolutely infectious. She brought me along to all of her appointments with fabric companies. She wasn't just into fashion. We met with people who were making upholstery for car seats and not only car seats, but for seats on rocket ships. Back then, there was a lot of talk about getting to the moon. One afternoon during my first week at the magazine, DJ said to me, find out where the New York Yankees buy their pinstripe fabric for their uniforms. Call them up. And I did. I mean, there's stuff to talk about with fabric. Magazines, bring back the fabric section. She always thought way outside of the box and always unconventionally. She taught me, for example, how to use fabrics for something other than their intended use. When we got a sample of the car seat upholstery, I remember her looking at it, handling it for a while, and then seeming out of nowhere saying, you know, this would make a fabulous coat. 
This way of thinking stayed with me for the rest of my career. I owe DJ a huge debt of gratitude for that. So they are assigned London for their Europe trip and Betsy's over the moon. Because the year before they had gone to Russia and she was like, that was kind of a lot. That was weird. (laughs) So they go to London. She loves London and she gets back from London and she is taken aside. DJ was pregnant. DJ's gone into labor and is now on maternity leave and they hire Betsy to fill in for her. So now post-college, post-internship, she's got a gig. Edie Locke was the editor in charge and she's the one who hired her. And Edie would end up being a huge advocate for Betsy in her career. Now she like, has to move out of this kind of dorm type thing that they lived in when they were interns. And she gets an apartment that's also like a women's apartment. She lives in all these buildings in New York that are ladies rules apartments where you like have to be in by a certain time. There's a curfew, no boys. It's, you know, very religious and dormy. <laughs> and then she gets kicked out because she's always coming home late. Because she like is obsessed with these guys who look like the Beatles and are playing at the World's Fair. She's boy crazy. So she has to find a new apartment. And it is hard, you know, even back then to afford an apartment in New York, especially on a magazine salary. So she's like, oh, I'll start designing shirts because I think that the people at my fashion magazine will think they're cool. And I'll sell these shirts. So she starts just like hand making these cute little tops. And they're crocheted. I found this hand crocheted looking fabric at one of the markets that DJ introduced me to. I cut and sewed it into a sweater that hugged the body. They had short tight sleeves and a scoop neck that was trimmed with half inch velvet. I finished them off with a little bow in the front. They were adorable if I do say so myself. I wore one of them to work and got plenty of compliments on it. When the girls found out I made it myself, they all started to ask for more. So she ends up borrowing $300 from her dad to make a bunch of them. And they all sell out. And then they feature them in the shop here section of the magazine. So she starts getting like a mass request. Kim Novak, the actress, orders one from the magazine. Ends up buying two more. So now she's like, oh, this might be a business. So Edie sets up a meeting with her with this guy, Paul Young. Paul Young is bringing this concept store called Paraphernalia to New York City. So basically, he invented the concept of the department store. Yeah. Before him, the idea of one big store that had separate floor space for different emerging designers had never existed before. Yes. So he wants to create this store called Paraphernalia in New York that will have all these emerging designers from around town. So she had been making a ton of clothes for the girls in the office. She runs around to the office and is like, can you bring your clothes back in? I need to show samples of what I've created. She redraws them all out so that she has fashion sketches. She steams them in her office. And then on her lunch break, she rolls a suitcase into this man's warehouse and is like, here's what I've created. And he offers her a job right on the spot. And her name is going to be on the tag, which she doesn't realize at the time is an enormous deal to have like Betsy Johnson for paraphernalia on the tag. I want to point this out to all of you design students out there. This is not how it usually works. People slave for years before their name goes on a label. Paul had asked Edie, who are some interesting designers right now? Edie brought up Betsy and then she was a designer for paraphernalia. And so she's working kind of alone in this warehouse It's just her and a pattern cutter. Yeah. And she says multiple times in this book, pattern designs is a real specific skill and you have to get someone good at it. And even though she can do it, you've got to find a real pattern cutter. Yes. So she's just designing things left, right and center. And there was some heartbreaking moments. There was a problem at the warehouse that was mass producing the designs. So hers were not ready for the launch of the store. So when they had the big launch party, she like was able to get some stuff in the store that she just like ran home and made herself. But she didn't have a whole rack of clothes at the grand opening, which was a huge deal. Andy Warhol produced the event. The Velvet Underground performed. She just like was kind of sad and went home early. And then her stuff arrived at the store and she like went back to just go look at her things in the store. And a lot of them were gone. And she ran up to the salespeople and was like, where are my clothes? And they were like, they sold. 
which is so cute. So the way things worked in paraphernalia were very different than how other stores ran. They did not design for seasons. They were just constantly designing, constantly turning it out. They were very small batches. The idea was to make it a downtown cool store uptown. It was right next door to Vidal Sassoon, which was like the place to be getting your hair cut at the time. And his idea was uptown girls would get their hair cut and then want a cool outfit for downtown. They were always having party. Models were always there. It was like the cool place to be. And she was one of the hot designers of the store. Things were always selling out. It couldn't stay on the rack. She's also hanging out with the velvets of the Velvet Underground all the time. That'll come back later. Because right from the get-go, I designed with one eye on creativity and the other eye on affordability. I told Paul that I didn't want any of my clothing to cost more than $99, which I equated to the cost of a weekend in Puerto Rico. That was the yardstick I used, very scientific. Can I say something? Yeah. I don't know that it's so affordable to be like, nothing I design will cost more than a weekend getaway. (laughs) I feel like if nothing you designed today was more than $99, I would still be like, oh, that's an affordable line. Yeah. But 40 years ago, I bet $99 was a lot of dollars. Well, I think it was expensive, but not out of reach. I think she was probably making $99 a week. Yeah, because at one point she gets a raise to like $300. And she's like, I was a rich baby. I was making $300 a week. Yeah. She's like, that's what I would spend to go to Puerto Rico for the weekend. Okay, so if we use that as the yardstick of today, I don't know what it would cost to go to Puerto Rico for the weekend and the hotel and stuff, but I'm like... Like 600 bucks. Yeah. Maybe. That's a splurge. Yeah. But they are for uptown people. So what's an uptown $600 for a downtown girl? Yeah, what's $99 in the 60s to a rich person? Go. (laughs) Someone with an Upper East Side brownstone, what's $99 to you? Yeah, ask your grandma. Someone who inherited an Upper East Side brownstone from their grandma, what was $99 to her? Yeah. Okay, so she's working at Paraphernalia. She's designing like crazy, and she's hanging out with the Velvet Underground all the time. She's dating Sterling, the lead guitarist, Sterling Morrison. But then she starts hanging out with John Cale, and she loves him. She's dressing all of them except for Nico, who she says like to design her own clothes. And then Lou Reed, all he ever wanted to was a motorcycle jacket and a gray suede trousers. So she thinks John is a musical genius. She's always like leaving parties early, but I think she did party like all night a lot. She was like very a part of this scene, even though she's like, and then I would go home and work. She mentions being on uppers for a little bit. Yeah, she's like, I never did drugs except for the diet pills I was on. And honestly, they may have been just amphetamines because I would get them (laughs) from this weird place in Queens. And I was like, okay, how hard was it to get diet pills in the 60s? If you were going all the way to a sketchy doctor in Queens in the 60s to get your diet pills, you were for sure just doing like straight speed. Yeah. She's like, sometimes it was pills. Sometimes it was just a tincture I had to put in my tongue. And I was like, okay. She also becomes friends with Andy Warhol. She's very much of the time of the scenes. One day she and John are hanging out. They've been dating for a little bit. They'd moved in together. And then she's like, we should get married. And so she designs these like matching velvet suits. And they go to City Hall to get married. Andy Warhol's running around City Hall taking pictures of people. And they have no idea that it's like their wedding day and they're being photographed by Andy Warhol. And then the judge is like, I'm not marrying you if you're wearing pants. That's crazy. You're a lady. And so she just goes into the bathroom and takes her pants off and comes out with no pants on. And she's like, what about now? And he's like, yeah, okay. They lived in this giant loft in NoHo where they like lived in one tiny corner where she built a dollhouse of a room for them. He had all of his instruments. She had all of her design equipment there. It just seems very cool. It was a very cool thing to be doing. Yeah. But then she finds out that John is on heroin and she just like didn't really realize it. 
So she ends up kind of coming between the band a little bit. She doesn't really explain the drama. I will say I think that there is more drama to her life than she explains in this book. One thing about this book is it's laid out for you one thing after the other. But when you take a step back, you go, what the fuck is going on? How did all of this happen? I wish we had read a biography of her because I think we need somebody to add context and be able to say, like, this is what was so genius about her. This is what was really going on. She kind of plays dumb. She has two different heroin addicted boyfriends, husbands. That later she's like, I just didn't realize. And I'm like, what do you mean you didn't realize twice? Yeah. Fool me once. <laughs> so John gets kicked out of the Velvet Underground. She doesn't really like delve into the drama. She's like, I joke that I was the Yoko of the Velvet Underground. But I'm like, wait, were you? But Lou had always been a little bit in love with John and hated it when John's attentions were not 100% on the band. I always felt uncomfortable with the negative vibe I got from Lou. It's no secret that there was never any love lost between the two of us after John and I got together. Lou never directly confronted me and we had no arguments. But there might be a sneer or a dirty look from him when I walked into the room or a dismissive reference to me as that girl who makes the clothes. And that hurt. I worked too hard to be referred that way. Not long after John and I were married, Lou called a band meeting without inviting John and told Maureen and Sterling that either John went or he would. I think we all knew which way that would end up going. John was out. Lou called it creative differences. They each had their own ideas about the future direction of the band. This much was definitely true. Lou wanted commercial success and the stuff John wanted to do was not often radio friendly, which was the key back then to hitting it big. And then she goes on to say she thinks Lou is jealous of John's musical virtuosity because she credits John with giving the Velvet Underground their interesting avant-garde sound. Yeah, she's like, they would have been a very good rock band either way, but John is what made them interesting. John, meanwhile, has been on heroin the whole time. And so after he gets kicked out of the band, he's really devastated. And he says, I'm going to go out to California to get sober. The way she talks about his drug use is so weird because she's like, I knew he did drugs because, you know, obviously he was in the scene and partying. But it wasn't until we lived together and after we got married that I started noticing needles. And she's like, you know, it was stressful. Every day I went to work, I'd wonder if he'd be alive at home and that put a burden on me. And I'm like, yeah, she really sanitizes a lot in this memoir in a way where I'm like, I respect her. She's obviously successful. It's still interesting as just a layout of her career. But the way she acts like it was stressful to have a husband who might die from an overdose every day is the way I would be like, it was stressful because the commute was long. Yeah. And every day I went to work, I knew that there might be a really long commute back home. So he moves out to California to try to get sober. And she's like, 3,000 miles was a big deal back then. Also, they didn't really like each other anymore. Yeah, within a year, they were not having sex and living like ghosts in the night. So she flies out to California with some divorce papers. He's already living with someone new. She's already dating someone new. They just kind of like quietly separated. And then we're divorced. And she still says John was my favorite husband. They're still close. We went years without speaking, but our paths eventually began to cross. I would see him in New York. This past year, I went with him to the Grammys where he received his Lifetime Achievement Award for his work with the Velvets. The press credited me as the Velvet Underground fashion designer. And I couldn't be prouder of that title or of the relationship I have with John now. Like I said earlier, he was my favorite husband. Millions of Americans experience thinning hair. It is not only common, it's completely normal. But among women, it's not openly talked about. And going through it can feel so lonely and frustrating. So join the thousands of women that are doing something about it with Nutrafol. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement clinically shown to improve visible thickness and strength. From postpartum to menopause to plant-based lifestyles, and no matter your life stage, Nutrafol has four unique formulas to support women. Each is physician-formulated using drug-free, science-backed ingredients so that you can get the most reliable results. Go to Nutrafol.com and take the health wellness quiz to identify causes of your thinning hair, and Nutrafol will give you a personalized plan for hair growth through their whole-body health approach. They support healthy hair growth from within by targeting the root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism. 
Nutrafol is now available in a vegan formula too. Their newest supplement is formulated for women ages 18 and up with plant-based lifestyles who are experiencing signs of hair thinning. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved growth after taking Nutrafol women's hair growth supplements for six months. I have been loving Nutrafol. I feel like I never really noticed any hair problems. And then I started really beating my hair up with chemicals and noticing that I could use some nutrition from within to take care of my hair. It's so important to do it from within. It's not just something a shampoo is going to help you with. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code WORM. Find out why over 4,000 healthcare professionals recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com promo code WORM. That's Nutrafol.com promo code WORM. Paraphernalia is going downhill. It's time to jump ship. It's not cool anymore. She says it died with the 60s. The 60s are over. They OD'd. Janis Joplin was dead. Jimi Hendrix was dead. We made it to the moon. There was nothing there. Also, they became a franchisee. So there was paraphernalia, paraphernalia. It has an R somewhere. Paraphernalia. They were all over the U.S. And she's like, sometimes they went way too far out by getting weird little indie designers. And she's like, you know, New York is not a yardstick for what everyone in America is wearing, especially back then before the Internet. Yeah. I don't think you could be like, here's some up and coming downtown designers in New York City. Is it going to sell in Ohio? No offense to Ohio, but she calls Paul and she cannot believe that he already knows you're about to leave, aren't you? And she's like, I guess he was really smart. And it's like, I don't think it takes a genius to realize that she was 24, had been selling out, was a huge success. And now it was time for her to move on. Yeah. So she leaves and she wants to get a job designing for a label and no one will hire her. They keep saying you don't have the proper education. And she's like, how could that be true if I had sold out my own personal line? And I think here is where she doesn't really look into the sexism of the time. There is something going on. Yeah. It is odd that not one person would hire her. One very important rule to learn in life is that you never, ever leave on bad terms. Not if you can help it. You never burn a bridge, no matter what industry you work in. I can guarantee that it's a small world and you'll end up running to the same people over and over. I wish I'd read this 10 years ago. (laughs) Anyway, so there was two other women. Their names were Bunky and Nini. And they were like, we're about to leave paraphernalia too. Let's all just start a store. You'll design your own stuff. We'll give you a room. Bunky is going to run it and Nini is going to source cool stuff from Europe. So they're like, all right, let's do that. So she's doing this tiny little store, making her own stuff by hand. And it turns out that cannot keep a woman afloat. She needs other gigs. But again, nobody will hire her. Yeah. So they have Betsy Bunky Nini, their little store. But yeah, it's kind of a side gig. And so then she gets a job designing clothes for a company called Alley Cat. It's like a friend of a friend finds out about her. Alley Cat is this new clothing store started by a Garmento from Philly. He's trying to capture the junior market. So she goes in for the interview and she is fucking ballsy as hell. She must be 25 years old. She meets this guy. She tells him how good she is. She has a lot of good press. They already knew who she was and liked what she was making and know that she can sell. And she sits down and she's like, I knew right away that I was going to get the gig. And so I just go, here's what I want. First of all, I wanted the freedom to design what I wanted and to be left alone to do it. If he could deliver on that one, I promise I could make it happen. I don't know where this confidence came from, but it was there. Second, I wanted my name on the label. I didn't realize what a luxury that was. Third, I explained my involvement with Betsy, Bunky, and Nini and told him that I wanted the freedom to use the workroom to continue to make those clothes as well, explaining that this was a prior commitment I still needed to honor. Fourth, I wanted to decorate the wholesale showroom myself and asked for two weeks to do it. Lastly, I wanted to hire the girls who would work in the showroom selling the line to the wholesale market. And I wanted to train them myself. I knew I needed girls who would understand the clothes and it was very important that the girls got me. So he's just like, okay, I'll think about it. He calls back the next day and goes, all right, I'll give you everything you demand. I like a woman who knows what she wants. 
So she's designing for Alley Cat and it is going well for quite some time. I mean, at first, things are crazy. It goes so well. She's flying all over the world, looking at textiles and getting inspiration for new patterns and designs. They completely leave her alone. One year she goes in to demand a raise. He goes, not only am I going to give you your double pay raise, but I'll also give you a free car. And she's like, holy shit. She feels like she hasn't made. She gets to do whatever she wants, whenever she wants, design whatever she likes. At one point when things are going so well, she's like, give me a four-year contract. I want some stability. And they're like, deal. She's going down to North Philly all the time to meet with all of the workers who are actually making the garments in the factories. And she's like, even though technically they're not making them with their hand, they're making them with the machines. I still respected the hell out of the people who are physically creating the clothes. And she's like, I would get on the floor and work with them because I thought if they understood how important it was to me, they would take more care with the clothes. Okay. She has this insane side story about getting detained in Dubrovnik. She's flying from India to, to where? Somewhere else. They misread her vaccination records and like detained her and tried to give her a vaccine. But because no one there spoke English, she thought that she was being like kidnapped and experimented on. Literally, they pulled the plane over in Dubrovnik where it wasn't supposed to land. They checked everybody's passports. They pull her off the plane and they take her to a hospital in the middle of the night, police escorted. They leave her in there all weekend, no food, and finally come in, don't explain anything, don't speak English, and just take out a needle. She goes fucking bananas, so much so that the doctors are like, well, we're getting out of here. One kind woman keeps bringing her hot dogs. She finally finds out that they thought she wasn't vaccinated properly. They were worried she was going to bring, what, cholera into the country. They had detained her for the weekend, and that's why nobody was there, because all the doctors were on vacation. And the nice woman who was bringing her hot dogs was just a woman who cleaned the hospital and knew she had been locked in there with no food. So once it was explained, they're like, oh, we read your papers wrong. You're free to get on a train and go. Jesus Christ. But I am like, that is truly one of the scariest things I've ever heard. Yeah. So at Alley Cat, she's crushing it. The company did more than $5 million in sales. and My designs were well received by the press. Life in the fickle world of fashion can be tricky at best. I loved my work situation and was eager for it to continue. I was now 28 years old. So she's doing great. She even gets this incredible award called the coveted Cody Award in September. She was up against people like Donna Karen and Diane von Furstenberg, who were very mad. They said she was not a real fashion designer. She was simply someone who designed clothes for a clothing manufacturer. Apparently, in some people's mind, there's a difference. But she won the award alongside Halston. So it was like a big fucking deal. Anne Klein and Bill Blass were there. She went to her boss and said, you need to throw me a party. This is a huge deal. She was the youngest person to the state who have ever won the award. And very few people win it for what they did say, like clothing manufacturers as opposed to high fashion lines. So she was like riding high, 28 years old. Yeah, she was making these crazy like knit patterns. She was doing a lot of really interesting, innovative things. When she was showing the photos of the sweaters with her intricate knits on them, I was like, I would buy that right now. To me, that marked the final days of independent expression. It was a time before you had to be a dear friend of Anna Wintour or Japanese or have a lot of money and a big corporation behind you to get recognized. Tea. I wonder what the Japanese part means. But yeah, I think she was just a girl who designed clothes and it went real good for her. It is so crazy to think that it could work this way, that she just kept getting hired into cooler and cooler, bigger opportunities. Well, it didn't. The next few seasons continue to be successful, but there was an eventual slowdown. They say the first three years in a job are telling. And, you know, after that, it got quiet. The business world was starting to change, not just at Alley Cat. But in the world of fashion as a whole, the junior market, which I was so good at designing, was evolving. Fashion was growing up and the trend was now a more minimal style of dress, like the stuff that Calvin Klein and Donna Karen were making. They wanted her to do these things. She, and I respect the hell out of her, she goes, I will never design for the trends. I design for a Betsy Johnson girl. Sometimes it's in, sometimes it's not. But she's never going to do what is working with the markets. 
Also, you know, they're able to copy her designs and make them cheaper, which drives sales away. Has plagued fashion to this day. Her boss stopped giving her the freedom that she had once had because the bottom line was not looking so lucrative. I gave it my all, but my spirit was crushed. I wanted to leave Alley Cat, but I knew I would have to buy my way at the remainder of the contract. Again, she approaches him and is like, listen, I just don't think it's working. I can't fake it. And he agrees. So she leaves. She's also getting kind of baby crazy. And she gets baby fever pretty bad. And she starts dating this guy named Joe who sucks. She's like, I don't even know how I met this guy. He was so cold and weird. She goes back to the story and they'd kind of just met outside of a bookstore, The Strand in New York, and started talking. And then they just moved in together. She was like, I don't even know what I liked about him. He was just tall and wiry and thin. And that's how I liked him. And I kind of fell in love when we made eye contact. And I was like, Ashley, oh, God, I relate to her in almost every situation in her life. So she starts dating this guy named Joe. They don't like each other at all, but they just move in together right away. And then she finds out she's pregnant. He has no interest in being a dad. And she's like, totally, I don't really have interest in him being a dad. I just wanted to be a mom. She's like, he won't get a job. He won't even contribute $100 a month. All he does is these giant metal installations. On their first date, he invited her over to watch him work. All I wanted was for him to try, but no. I was the one making sure all the bills got paid and the light stayed on. I was going to be responsible for baby Lulu and I wanted him to go. So she tells him when she's pregnant, she's like, hey, after I have this baby and I recover a little bit, I would like us to be broken up and never see each other again. And he goes fucking nuts. He's like, if you do that, I will kidnap this baby. And she was like, I didn't even know you wanted a baby. That's crazy. But eventually she does just kind of leave him. He dips right after the birth. He goes to Mexico. Yeah. So while he's gone, she's like, all right, I'm going to leave. She gets better quickly, moves out. She is at this time, by the way, is doing all this freelance work because once she left Alley Cat, she was taking on freelance jobs. And at this point, she was designing a children's line. And so she like fully on her due date does a fashion show for children's wear. And she was like, it was actually quite impactful for the designer of children's wear to come out very pregnant. It was a good look, honestly. <laughs> but she does this fashion show. She goes into labor. He's gone. She gets better. She moves out. She gets a night nurse. And what should happen? But like a month later, they hear someone scaling the walls of the apartment building. And it's Joe. They fucking freak out. They scream. The baby screams. Joe skedaddles away, but she runs out and gets a restraining order. But then she says for months, she was always afraid of seeing him. He eventually left the city pretty quickly after. And she says a couple of years later, she got a call from a woman who was his wife demanding that Betsy support her and their two children. Four. She told me she wanted me to support Joe, her, and their four children. I must have developed a much stronger constitution by this time because I broke into hysterical laughter and I hung up on her. Can I say something? She said a short time later. How do you have four kids in a short time? I think it was like a short time in the span of a lifetime, <laughs> maybe 10, 15 years. He got busy. <laughs> a short time compared to 80 years on this earth. But that was the last she ever saw of fucking Joe. I wonder how Lulu feels about that. She also says back in the 70s, being a single mother, especially on purpose, was just not heard of. When she called and told her parents, they didn't even really acknowledge it. They didn't know what to do. Eventually, they got over and just fell in love with the baby. But it was a big deal back then to be a single mom. Yeah. So for a while, she was just working with her daughter, Lulu, there. She was doing freelance work. So for the most part, she would just show up to a meeting with Lulu. She was designing for Capizio, a brand called Misty, shoes for I. Miller, and Nina, a sportswear and jeans for Adriana Goldschmidt, t-shirts for Michael Millet. She was just doing a ton of work, and Lulu was there the whole time. But then she decides she's going to start a brand. So she is very upset that she can get full-time work. And she's like, when is somebody going to come and give me the opportunity to design again as myself? 
And her friend, Giorgio Santangelo, finally says to her, Betsy, no one is going to do this for you. You need to do it for yourself. If I were you, I would just design a line, plan a fashion show, and announce your back. Coming from Giorgio, this was a major statement. He was such a gentleman, and I never saw him get his feathers ruffled, but he seemed adamant about this, so he must have meant business, or he could have just been fed up with me complaining. And it was also perfect timing because she had just six months ago been told by a psychic that in six months she would do something cool, but she needed to wait. And she's like, wait a second, that six months was the waiting period. And now Giorgio telling me this is the sign to start. So she calls her friend Chantal Bacon. Amanda Chantal Bacon? I literally was like, wait, why do I know the name Chantal Bacon? Me too. I kept being like, who is this woman and why is she so important to me? And how do I already know she's chic with beautifully, stunningly white eyeballs? And it turns out Amanda Chantal Bacon is not Chantal Bacon. But do you think it's her daughter? I literally tried to Google that and I didn't find anything. God, Chantal Bacon is such a chic name. Yeah. So she calls Chantal Bacon, who's like the best business lady she knows, and is like, what if we start a fashion line together? And Chantal takes two weeks to think about it. And Betsy is kind of shocked. She's like, Chantal was the only person I would work with. She was a wholesaler. She worked with other designers. And she's like, we had very parallel lives. And then she lists Chantal's life. And I'm like, I don't know what that has to do with your life. Chantal was a shop girl and a model in London. And she's like, that's just like me. <laughs> I was like, in what way is that just like you? Whatever. So Chantal takes some time to think about it and comes back and is like, hell yeah, let's hit it. Well, not really. She goes, okay, but Chantal, you have to put your party girl ways aside. She was partying a lot and had a series of boyfriends who, quite frankly, frightened me. I wasn't being judgmental. God knows I was playing the field and had my share of bad news boyfriends too, but I was trying to put that behavior behind me. I got very serious and told her she would have to settle down and leave that stuff behind. I needed someone who was committed to the business first because I was just that serious about starting a company with her. It's very funny to be like, there's nobody I'll work with but you. By the way, I want you to change major things about your personal life that I will not change about myself. I have to say one thing about this book which is why I would like a biography, is I kind of have no sense of what it's like to know Betsy Johnson as a person. Yeah. This book is so sterilized. She's so like, I was very level-headed. I was very chill about stuff. Or whenever she freaks out, she was like, it was very unlike me to freak out. But I'm also like, are you funny? Are you quick? Are you like, what are you like in person? I feel like her voice is so removed from the writing of this book. Yeah. that You get no sense of her personality. And I find this to be true of all memoirs. It's hard to know what it would be like to feel that person's energy because you can't say it about yourself. You can't go, my energy was. And sometimes it leaps off the page in the yeah. writing. Like occasionally we'll read a book where I'm like, I feel like I'm having a conversation with that person. In this one, I don't know who I'm talking to, but I like her. I'm like, she's very pleasant all around, but is she? I don't know. I wonder. I really want to know what she's like in real life. Because I'm sure she's wacky, but the writing is not wacky. No. And there's a couple times in here where she's like, you know, I gave it as good as I could take it. I love to spar with him. I was addicted to the sparring. And I'm like, are you crazy in real life? But anytime she goes into a fight with someone, she's like, you know, it's so unlike me to lose my cool. Yeah. There's a picture of Chantal Bacon. She's a fucking smoke show. She was a model and a shop girl. That's the hottest combo of things you can be. <laughs> they go and try to get a loan because they're like, we need 200K to start this brand. The bank is like, you actually need a lot of money to get a loan. You have to have 100K to get a 200K loan. So they're like, shit, where are we going to get that? And they scrape together all their savings and they go to their parents and then Betsy Johnson also does an ad for aspirin. And then they end up getting the loan. And she acts like doing this aspirin commercial is the biggest sellout. She's like, I'm humiliated. My street cred is decimated. And it's like, it's okay, Betsy. Take the brand deal. Her dad ends up going in for about a third. And then he felt so left out that he wasn't part of the conversations. And she's like, what if you were a silent partner? He literally is like, well, I don't understand why I can't be there making choices with you guys. I'm a partner too. And she's like, yeah, but you don't really know anything. You can't just come to the diner and stay up all night working on clothes with me. 
Yeah, so they have to buy the dad out. But then they get ready to put on their first show. And they do this like really fun, creative thing. They hire like a bunch of sex workers as models and have this show where like the curtain comes up and no one's wearing clothes. And then they like put clothes on throughout the show. And she was hiring all like sex workers and strippers and people she met out because the venue was right by the Lincoln Tunnel entrance, which is, I guess, where her old roommate Cheryl was hanging out. And she's like, I love those gals. And they were very comfortable being nude. So I was like, why don't you come in? And she's like, I got them way cheaper than regular models. And the show went so well. They designed a whole line. Everyone loved it. The big thing about this line was Lycra. Lycra had just been invented. And she was like, what if we made active wear everyday wear? She invented athleisure. She was like, it's stretched in four directions. Yeah, but then no one bought it. So that was a big problem. And she's like, you know, I I went on vacation for two weeks after our fashion show and said, Chantal, it's on you to sell. You can take a vacation when you're done selling. And when she came back, nothing had sold. And she's like, I yelled at Chantal, but Chantal would not have a fight back with me. She just kept saying, sorry, it didn't sell. What do you want me to do? Yeah. Luckily, they were bailed out. One very cool Italian brand came in and bought a ton of stuff. And then they do a second collection and none of that shit sells, not even to the cool Italian brand. Yeah, she's like, we went with day glow colors. We took the stuff that nobody wanted but the Italians and put it in even wackier colors. And so then she's like, what the fuck am I going to do? And her friend is like, open a store. Yeah. If no stores want your stuff, have your own store. Her magazine editor friend is like, people are always asking me where I can get your stuff. And stores apparently won't stock it. So just open a store. So they find this like teeny tiny space in Soho. Back when it was still dangerous. Back when it was dangerous. She says it was so small that if two people came in the store, the shop girl had to stand outside. So it was a closet. It sounds so cool. She loves decorating and she takes such pride in decorating everything. And the way she decorated this was she found all of her old fashion sketches and papered it all over the place. It might have been the first ever pop-up shop, she says, because they signed a month-to-month lease at a tiny little closet in Soho. They open the store. It goes so well. They sell a bunch of stuff. They start making money and then they move to a bigger store. They love the neighborhood though. So they just go down the street. Yeah. She says she has to decorate things very cheaply. And she's like, how do I make an impact for no money? And she goes, okay, you just use bright paint. So she paints the ceiling and the walls pink and then does vinyl floor stickers and black and white on the floor. And she goes, voila, that ended up being the recipe for all of my future stores. And it came from needing to be frugal. And then she says the perfect finishing touch is she had this photo that Andrew Warhol had taken of her on a Polaroid and signed and she had it framed and she put it behind the cash register. She goes, it was stolen within three days. She met this guy at a coffee shop. He was a fucking weirdo. At the cupping room, which is still there if you want to go and find your own weirdo. He was a burger flipper, but very good to look at. She says the conversation was bad and the sex wasn't even good, but he was really beautiful and she was obsessed with him. Within three months, they moved in together, got married, and got divorced, I think. Meanwhile, he seemed awful. Somehow in those three months, he was a drug addict. He would come into her house, scream late at night, break stuff. And then at this point, she has this daughter, Lulu. And Lulu hated him because they were always like taking a cab in the middle of the night to go hide at Chantal's place to be safe. But she said, you know, the next day he would come back and be so apologetic. And one of these times he offered to marry her and she always took him back. And you're like, Betsy, don't do that. You have a baby now. So this is her only really traditional churchy wedding. Her dad walks her down the aisle. She and Lulu were matching dresses that she designs. She's also launching a bridal collection. And so the wedding is like an ad for her collection, honestly. Yeah, she dresses all the bridesmaids. She dresses herself. She dresses her daughter. And then, you know, her husband's drug addiction is a huge problem. She realizes on their honeymoon how addicted to drugs he is because he's going through withdrawals. And she's like, oh, yikes. That's bad. So on their honeymoon... He's like puking and has the flu and is so grumpy. And he's like, we need to get to a doctor. I'm having back spasms. We need to get to a doctor. I'm having back spasms. And at the party the night before, which had been a real hit party and everybody downtown had wanted to go, everybody's like, your husband seems high. And she's like, no, he isn't. 
he's just like having a really good time. Everybody's like, I don't know. He won't be around you. And he seems to be like mean to you. And he seems like fucked up right now. And she's like, shut up. And then of course he's so sick the next day. And then she finally realizes he's in withdrawals. And so she calls her friend who lived down the street and is like, can you go get my daughter and meet me in Mexico? And she kicks him out right then and there and ends up having a honeymoon with her daughter and her friend. Yeah. And then she gets back home. His stuff is cleared out of her loft. So it's a lot of her stuff because he robbed her a lot. (laughs) And she's like, oh, yeah. Oops. After our divorce was finalized, I never heard from Jeff again, at least not directly. I was in touch with his sister, whom I had actually become close to. Can I say at first I was like, yeah, that makes sense. But then I was like, when you met him, married him and divorced him in three months. Yeah. When would you ever even met the family? It's strange because in all other areas of my life, it's always my way or the highway. But when men are concerned, I will admit to having a blind spot. Uh, well, that's true. <laughs> the store is going really well. I mean, things in business are doing really good. The downtown store is thriving. So they decide to do an uptown store. And they do a great job of just opening these other little shops. They open an L.A. store on Melrose. And she does everything by hand. She goes in the night before. She decorates it herself. She's still designing all the clothes. She's still handpicking all the sales girls. And she and Chantal are still like scouting and finding all these locations just completely themselves. She's like, when we decide to open a new store, unless someone tips us off to a great spot, if we decide on a new city, we would just like go get coffee in that city and be like, where are the cool people going? Literally, she's like, when we heard about an up and coming area, we would go and sit outside at a cafe and count how many potential customers would walk by. And if it was high enough, we'd open a store there. It was working for a while. Yeah, they were in Newberry Street in Boston, then down to Florida. They had a mini empire of 10 stores, and a few years later, the count was up to 20. Neither Chantal nor I ever had the notion of conquering the world one store at a time. It just seemed to happen organically, and our system worked for us. As soon as we had enough money in the bank, we'd open a store. That was all the business model we needed. So things are going well there. Unfortunately, now we're introduced to husband number three, the worst of them all, some might say. So she's invited to a party. She was single for the first time in a while, and her friend was like, there'll be hot guys at this party. And she's like, sign me up, bitch. So she goes out and she goes to this party and she meets a guy who she thought she was just organically meeting. Can I also say something? So she's like, I got dressed up to go. Before leaving the party, I went into Lulu's room to say goodnight. She was half asleep and in a groggy voice asked why I was going out so late. I told her nothing ventured, nothing gained. I need Lulu's story. What was Same. it like to grow up with Betsy? Because she talks later about like, I need to go out to this cool networking area called the Mud Room where everybody cool hung out. She was like, it was like CBGB's, but for cool people. <laughs> Downstairs, she had some gay guy who was an original Barbie collector who was addicted to making clothes for his Barbie dolls. And she would call him up in the middle of the night and say, can you come watch Lulu? And he would go and sew up on her sewing machine Barbie clothes so that she could go out. And she think it was important for business because you had to network with all the cools. But I was just like, what was it like to be Lulu like on your mom's hip in these warehouses, just being babysat by whoever was nearby? I'm very curious. So anyway, she's back at this party. So she meets this guy who she thought she was organically meeting, but it turns out he'd been briefed on her and was like kind of there to meet her. And she's enthralled. He's a bazillionaire. She didn't know that. She found out later. I will say he opened by going, this bottle of wine you're drinking that I brought myself is worth more than $500. Ew, uh, Betsy. Ew. (laughs) Disappointing to hear it turned her on. I think the reason it turned her on is because she says, I liked that he had his own money. I'd always been dating these guys who were just like absolutely mooching off me. Yeah. And so she's like, it would be nice to have a guy interested in me who wasn't interested in me because I was paying his bills. Like what you were saying, it's so hard to be a successful woman, especially in this time. I feel like on both ways, it's the dynamic of men being threatened by women or using women and the other like internalized patriarchy of women being like, well, I want a man who's like a provider or dominant or whatever. But if you're already so successful and dominant and you need someone more successful and dominant than you, you're going to end up with a crazy. 
It's a tough position to be in. And this guy was a crazy. He was an eccentric billionaire. She says that he used to land at JFK and water ski to Manhattan, <laughs> which I literally have no idea how that would work. I don't know enough about the waterways around here. He had all these houses around the world, Palo Alto, Jamaica, Yorkshire. And he would just expect her to show up there when he wanted her to. And I think at this point, she mentions at least towards the end of their eight-year on-again, off-again relationship, Lulu is like an adult and out of the house. Because at first I was like, how is she just like leaving all the time? She has a kid. Like Lulu is not mentioned really at all in her relationship with this guy until the wedding. Yeah. But he has an ex that hates him and is always just like showing up and being mean to Betsy. And she's like, I think he liked it. I think he liked watching us go at each other. And he was so mean to her. He would make her weigh in when they hung out. Yeah, in a controlling way to be like, I love your weight. You're not allowed to lose or gain weight. But then the ex would come and make fun of her for her weight. Yeah. It was very sick. And then she's like, we would go on vacation to Jamaica. And the ex would be there with her new boyfriend. It was very much like meant to antagonize me. Like you had to accept anything he told you. And he was a thrill seeker. She's much more reserved. He would force her to do all these things that scared the shit out of her. He was always antagonizing her. Yeah, one time they were in a private plane and he told the pilot to cut the engines. And it turns out it was like a prank that he and the pilot had planned. He would force her to jet ski and like jellyfish filled waters, even though she's deathly afraid of jellyfish. It was just all to fuck with her. And like also he was stalking her, basically. He had her apartment bugged. She found out years later. I think she still married him after finding that out. But yeah. Also, every weekend, it was you had to go where he wanted you. And she says her work started to suffer. And he didn't care if she had to work. He would be like, you could just video conference in. And it was the first time in her life that a man really came between her and her job. After about eight years in our on-again, off-again relationship, we were going through a rare up period. And she just said, what if we get married next time we're in Yorkshire, which is where he was from? I think she proposed to all of her husbands. Me too. She says about John Kale. I can't really remember who brought it up, but we decided then and there just to get married. And then she's like, and then I asked this one who she doesn't name. She just refers to as he, if he wanted to get married. I can't imagine Jeff. The burger flipper. The burger flipper, high on heroin, was pushing marriage, really. Yeah, I can't imagine he created a proposal for her. It feels much more likely that the woman who was currently designing a bridal line was like, what if we got married? I will say, I tried to Google who this guy is, and I found the name of a third husband. I think his name is Brian Young or something, that they got married in 1997 and are still happily married to this day. And I was like, Google. You got to Google this. I think you're wrong. So she was very caught up in the planning of this wedding and says the reality of what I was about to do didn't hit me until the minute I was about to walk down the aisle. She knew pretty much right away that she was making a huge mistake, but she still went through with it. The problem is she needs to be an event planner. She just had this beautiful idea of how to plan this gorgeous wedding. And she says they split it down the middle, the cost, and the costs were extravagant. I was like, Ugh, if you're going to marry an asshole billionaire who bugged your house, at least just let him pay for it. Like, stop with the power play of we're equal partners in this relationship when you clearly aren't. If you're already a prisoner to a rich man, at least don't you lose money. <laughs> so they get married. And right after he acts insane, he insists that they go upstairs and consummate the relationship, even though all of their friends and family are here and all of his friends are getting in on it. OK, she doesn't really get into details, but it kind of sounds like he assaulted her. So he rips her wedding ring off of her finger, which in it was inscribed wife and don't forget it. And then he threw it across the room and then he rips her dress and she doesn't like get into more, but she was like, it was just a really awful moment. She says, it still makes me sick to even think about that scene. Sally and Bobby tried to get me to see how awful number three behaved towards me, but I just didn't want to hear it. And then he kept putting off their honeymoon. They were supposed to leave the next day, but he kept saying, my whole family is here. Like, we can't leave. Eventually, in order to leave him, she has to like hide from him for about a week with Lulu. 
The actual marriage only lasted six months. When it finally did end, it wasn't over anything particular. I was just tired and knew it was time. She was supposed to go to meet him in Jamaica and she just didn't get on. And so he starts calling her incessantly and leaving these insane voicemails. And Lulu is like, you cannot answer him. And she spends the day with Lulu. And then Lulu's like, we have to hide. You can't be living with him when he gets home. So they hide out in the Mercer Hotel. And after two days, he finally leaves a voice. Two days. Also, like, I'm sorry. But if somebody is like willing to get a divorce over not hearing from you for two days. Well, I think it was a couple days of her not being in Jamaica and then a couple days of him not being able to find her in New York. It happened very quickly. And so then he goes, okay, you win. I'm going to Haiti to sign the divorce papers. She's like, it seemed like he assumed I'd bail on this relationship. And it was important to her that he is the one that actually signed for the divorce. And I'm like, Betsy, you had to get out of there. If you were too afraid to be at your own home, if your daughter had to help you hide from your husband, then we're beyond the point of, well, who gave up on this marriage? Yeah. So then she luckily goes to therapy after her divorce from number three. She's like, I think I pick him wrong. Yeah. And she's like, I wanted to know why I stayed with this man for 10 years when it was so bad. And she's like, I didn't really figure anything else out, but I got so bored in therapy after a year that I just quit. And what I did come to terms with was that for whatever reason, I did what I did. And at the very least, I stopped beating myself up about it. So then a couple of years later, it's 2001. For someone who was like a diehard New Yorker, she's like, well, we all remember December 2001. It was a brutal winter where I got breast cancer. And I'm like, okay, so no 9-11 story. Got it. (laughs) She wakes up one day and realizes her left implant has deflated. So she has to go to the doctor and get surgery to have her implants removed. And as her scars are healing, she's paying more attention to her boobs and she finds a lump. So she goes to the doctor again and has the lump checked. And it turns out she does have breast cancer. They did catch it pretty early, but only because her boob exploded. She decides to go through this without telling anyone except Lulu. Lulu's the only person who knows about her cancer. She actually lies. Everyone at the company or like the important people all knew she was going to get this checked out. And she comes to the Christmas party and goes, false alarm. We're good to go. So she has six months of targeted radiation and she just doesn't tell anyone what she's going through. She says, one thing I did know is that I had to tell Lulu and she had to know that if she told a soul, it could ruin my life. I'll confess, I didn't stop to consider how much pressure that might be for her to handle. I just desperately needed her to know. She's very afraid of the stigma of illness. She says, illness of any kind always has a stigma attached to it, especially if you're running a company and so many people depend on you, which is really sad. She also says this was before anybody was really publicly talking about breast cancer and she didn't know how common it was. She felt very alone. Mm -hmm. So she does six months of radiation where she's going to work full time. And she's like, I was definitely losing weight and I had low energy, but nobody asked about it. Nobody led on that they noticed a difference in me. And luckily she got back a clean bill of health. So she kind of made it through and never told a soul. And then she gets a request. The Council of Fashion Designers in America reached out and was like, hey, we're going to do this breast cancer awareness thing. And we want you to design a car that's been donated by General Motors, like decorate a car all funky and pink. It's actually just like an overall charity auction. And she is specifically designing the breast cancer awareness car. Yeah. And so she goes in and it's like, I have to tell you, I like just got over breast cancer. And this is really important to me. And I'm really grateful that you're talking about it. And so then she designs this car and like an hour before she has to go to this big presentation, this big event, she gathers her company and everyone, Chantal included. And she's like, by the way, just finished breast cancer treatment. Thought you should know. And Chantal was very upset. A lot of people were, you know, sad, worried. She goes, thank God I didn't tell them earlier because I couldn't handle seeing them cry all the time like this. And Chantal kind of leaves and she has to go and give this speech. And she's worried that Chantal is going to be honestly, understandably upset that her closest friend didn't let her in on this huge thing. And instead, Chantal just comes out and says, I'm so sorry I didn't know. 
and then a gentle hug. No anger, no judgment, just the most perfect comment she could have made. But at this event, she makes a big speech about and she tells everyone in the world that she's just survived breast cancer and that like people with implants need to be a lot more careful and a lot more aware and checking for certain things because your implant can mask the ability to find these lumps. And it makes headline news. It's the cover of the New York Post. And I think she did a lot for talking about breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So she never got her implants re-put in. So today I'm flat as a pancake, same as when I was growing up. And believe me, I'm just fine with that. So for 30 years, the Betsy Johnson company was just pretty much her and Chantal running everything. By 2005, I found myself the co-owner of a large privately owned company. We had 66 retail stores nationwide, each one with its own crew of devoted Betsy Girl employees. I finally found the sorority I envisioned belonging to in college. It's all the same group. They hire from within. She still designs all of the clothes. She still decorates all of the stores. She calls it a mom and mom shop, but just with 66 locations. And then private equity comes a knocking and they make her an offer they can't refuse. Can you believe so this company had been around for 30 years? Guess how many years it takes for private equity to absolutely gut and destroy it? Two. In two years, private equity is able to come in and just completely undermine and destroy a company that was succeeding and thriving for 30. You'll never believe it. Did you know firing everybody at a successful company and bringing in people who know nothing about the industry is not a good way to handle things? Like what happened to Panera Bread. I know. That's why Panera Bread sucks now. Nobody at the top of that company can make bread anymore. Nobody even knows a fucking thing about sourdoughs. I don't think Chantal or I fully realized what we had built because we were too busy building it. And when you're on the inside looking out, it's hard to see the big picture. So within a couple months, Chantal's like, I got to get out of here. This fucking sucks now. Yeah. I mean, and Chantal had already at this point been like, when you came to me, I thought we would do like a 10 year thing. We would give it our best shot. I never thought I would still be running a 30 year old international company. And she's like, I'm ready to take some time. I'm tired. You're getting old. So that's why they let the private equity in. And then when private equity comes in, first they make them fire like half of the people on staff. And Betsy is heartbroken, but she doesn't know what to do. And they replace everybody with just like businessmen who don't know a thing about fashion. And they changed the way the entire company is run. And everybody's like, well, this is how we've always done it. And this is what's worked. And they're like, we don't care. We have a better way. And she says the craziest thing about these people is that they're obsessed with their monthly board meeting. And that all they do all month is prep for the board meeting. And she's like, I would ask them to do practical things for the company. And they'd be like, we can't. We're prepping for the board meeting. And she's like, what is the board meeting? Why are we spending all month preparing for a meeting that we've never had to have before? Yeah. To like talk about how it's going. Like you're spending all month preparing how it's going to tell other people how it's going so that we could see how it should go next month. She's like, just do something for the company. So they didn't and they tanked it. She says that they come up with this new data-driven way of figuring out where to be opening stores strategically. And she's like, I don't know, man, the way we did it for 30 years worked. We opened 66 shops based on our sense of where cool people were and going and confirming with our eyeballs that cool people were there. She says that she has very few regrets in her entire life, but letting private equity in would be at the top of the list of regrets. And also for the first time, she has to run her fucking designs by the private equity people. She's like, this was different. For the first time that I could remember, my work was being judged by people I didn't respect. And that made me feel very insecure. They specifically questioned why we didn't read trend reports. We did this because my clothing wasn't trendy. It was what it was. I don't like feeling insecure. And I don't like questioning myself. I don't think many people do. So then they're very unsuccessful. I knew that eventually the crash would have to come. And when it did, it hit me like a ton of bricks. The suits came to me informing in no uncertain terms that they planned to file for bankruptcy and close all my stores. I couldn't even bring myself to think of how many of my pink ladies would be out of a job. To make matters worse, they told me that I was contractually forbidden to tell anybody. So for six months, she just had a smile knowing that everybody was about to get fired. Horrible. I hate suit men. Here's what's stupid about them. You come to a company because it's going well. Why would you then change that? 
Well, because I think that they know a better way to like maximize the profits of how it's going. And it's like, well, you obviously don't. But if the profit comes from people buying things and the desire to buy things comes from like the quality. In August of 2010, just in time for my birthday, Steve Madden swooped in like Superman and purchased my brand. So he kind of brought it back from the dust because at this point, it's just a shell of a company. There's just basically the name. She has this photo of a for sale sign on one of her stores that says store closing, entire store 30 to 60% off. And the caption just says, sad but true. And so he comes in and he says, you can be the creative director. She would work with licensees and their designers on a whole range of products, including dresses, activewear, shoes, jewelry, fragrances, bedding, et cetera, et cetera. It reminded me of when I was designing so many different kinds of products. For the first time, however, I would not be exclusively responsible for designing the product. And this would be a real learning curve. But I was on board and so determined to keep the brand alive. To be honest, the results, in my opinion, haven't always been successful. But when that happens, the blinders go on once again and I deal with it. So she's learning how to be more collaborative because that just is the way the business runs now. She also gets an opportunity to do Dancing with the Stars. First, they do a reality show. Oh, yeah. Her and Lulu do a reality show. Can I read one of the most insane sentences I've actually seen in a memoir to date? Yeah. It was actually Lulu who was contracted by a producer who was interested in the two of us starring in our own reality TV show. It sounded like fun. I mean, what could go wrong? Lulu was going through some personal issues of her own, and we decided that this might actually be a good distraction for both of us. We couldn't have been more wrong. If you're like, I'm in a bad time in my life, maybe letting millions of viewers in look at it would be a good distraction. No, it's a magnifying glass that not only makes everything worse, but like humiliates you in the process. Why would you think a bad time in your life would be a good time to open yourself up to the public? I don't know. This feels insane, but they have a never say no law. So then next she does Dancing with the Stars, which she says made her a big name in grocery stores. <laughs> it like helped her like LA more because she spent more time in LA and she'd always hated it. And then Lulu was like, I'm moving to LA. And she was like, what the fuck? You know, we hate LA. And then she's like, you know what? Actually, I'll move in with you. And so she moves in. She goes, let me back up. Lulu got married in 2006 and within a year gave me my first grandkids. So she has two daughters. They're her pride and joy. When she found out that Lulu was moving, she was crushed. That was her only family. And she's like, you know what? Now that she's gone, I have nothing tying me to New York City. And then she's like, the original plan was she would get a big house and I would move in. So she rented this house and I lived in the garage. I think the original plan was that Lulu would get a big house and Betsy could visit. Yes. Like there'd be a grandma room where she could come visit. But then she sells her Hamptons house and her Upper East Side house and is like, I'll just live with you. And Lulu had to be like, no. And it turns out part of the reason Lulu moved to LA in the first place was to get some distance. And she's like, it was really hard for me because she had never been more than a shouting distance away. I gave her the apartment downstairs as a wedding gift. So I always had access. And I'm like, OK, yeah, I see why Lulu got out of there. But now they live like up the hill from one another so they can get to each other by golf cart. And that's what works. Yeah. And that's where I am today. Lulu is building the house of her dreams right up the hill from me. We are definitely living separately, but she and the kids are just a golf cart right away. And the situation works out perfectly for all of us. And then she says that she had to have like open heart surgery recently. And it's made her question everything. And she's like, well, now I thought I had like 10 years left, but because of my surgery, I might have 20. So, you know, who knows? Who knows what we'll do? She goes, it got me thinking, what makes me happy now? Have I been successful? The answer is yes, of course. In so many areas of my life, I've been very successful, but personally successful? The truthful answer is no, not very. Certainly not my track record with men but at least I'm still trying. I'm focused on being a good mother and grandmother to my own girls. And as I reflect back, I realize that I've also been a mentor to so many generations of Betsy girls. I can't tell you how often I'm approached on the street and restaurants at events and pretty much everywhere I go by fans who will always tell me the same thing. I wore a Betsy dress too, fill in the blank. As a response, I asked them the same question. Did you have a great time? The answer is always a resounding yes. Knowing you contributed even a small way to a milestone in a girl's life is very humbling and that's a good feeling. 
can I tell you, mm-hmm. I have this bag that's a Betsy Johnson bag that for like probably 10 years of my life, I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever owned. It was so cool. It was like a turquoise hobo bag with multicolored guns on it. And I was like, this is so fucking sick. She ends it with like her next chapter. She's never been a woman to like sit and enjoy the view, but she's hoping this is every woman's hope. They're like, I hope I finally learned how to sit and smell the roses. And that's it. What do you think of Bets? How fertile was the soil? I would give it a three out of five. I think her life is interesting enough that even the toned down version, even just the nuts and bolts is interesting. Is interesting. I do not feel that this book gave us a ton. I bet there's a five out of five version somewhere and I would love to know about it. I would it. love the biography of Betsy Johnson. A documentary maybe, like interviewing some of these yes, people. I guess like imagery wise, just to see what was going on. She has just had so much success from the get-go. I've never seen anything like it. She has such a personal style. She's been around since the 60s. To be more successful than ever in 2005 and have already been so successful and helped determine the 60s, I mean, that's crazy. That's a crazy legacy. And I think it's hard to kind of brag about yourself in your own book. And I I don't know, I kind of want to know about who she is as a person. Like, how did this girl from Connecticut just come out of this small town in Connecticut with such a sense of self? I agree. How many fertile soils would you give it? I would agree three out of five. There was a really interesting story here, and I enjoyed this book. I think for anyone like interested in Betsy Johnson and like fashion, there are some fun names in here. There's some fun stuff going on. But like, I think that there is a better Betsy Johnson story out there. And how many worm teenies would you like with her? I would love to have like three to four worm teenies with her. She seems like a goof. She seems like a tank too. I just have a feeling she can hold her own. Yeah. And I would love to have those worm teenies in like a Betsy Johnson decorated space. Yes. Whether it's like her Malibu trailer. Oh my God. We forgot to mention. So when she moves to Malibu, she's like, I love saying I live in a trailer. And I'm like, celebrities love to move to a $7 million trailer and be like, me, I'm a homeless. <laughs> they love that. There's a whole yeah. society of single women in Malibu going, and this is our little girl trailer park. Yeah. The, the trailer park gals. I'm pretty sure it's the same place. As Pam Anderson. Pam Anderson. Yeah. So, you know, I would love to like see her world and meet her for an evening. Yeah, I would love the documentary. I'd love to learn about her daughter. All right, you guys, we love you so freaking much and we'll see you soon. See you soon. Thank you so much to our five-star reviewers. You know I freaking love you. Thank you, K and S8. I love both K and S eight times over. That's 16 for the duo. App, app, app user. I am so grateful that you're using this podcast listening app. Thank you, Queensberry. You are the berry of my eye, always in season, always a friggin' delight. I can't wait to make you into a pie. Snuggly radish. Oh, the most delicious fall vegetable. I actually don't know when it's in season, but to me, it's forever. Thank you, Eye Contact 521. I can't wait to look directly into your eyes and tell you how much I appreciate you. Plagued by Paige, well, I am plagued by how much I adore Paige. Unless you're not Paige, then however much I love you. Thank you, V-N-I-Kellett14. I love you as much as I love Colby Kellett. Colby Calais, for anyone who's interested. Mao and Bear22, I wish I could give you a bear hug because I don't really like hugs, but for you, I would. That's all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I freaking love you.